Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on August 12th. President Joe Biden might need to accept a hard fact. He will always be viewed in contrast to his predecessor, Donald Trump. Biden defeated Trump in the 2020 election, of course, but so much of what Biden has done as president has been with Trump in the background, or sometimes the foreground. Just look at this week, the day after the Senate approved a multi-billion dollar climate and healthcare and tax bill, after more than a year of negotiations, the FBI served a search warrant on Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. More on that. Biden then signed two huge bipartisan bills, one that helps the semiconductor industry in the United States, and one that helps veterans who were exposed to toxic burn pits. Trump appears in New York for a deposition and pleads the fifth. Biden's on a roll, but Trump is there always to claim his share of oxygen. What are voters to make of this as the midterms approach? Here to discuss these topics and more are Amanda Becker, politics reporter for 19th News. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Sarah Wire, Justice Department and National Security reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. And Alex Rorty, White House correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Jason. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let's let's begin. Let's begin with Biden, because the you know, I think it was maybe uh, yesterday, say, when, you know, Biden is underwater, his approval ratings are in the toilet. He's destroying Democrats dreams. Um, you know, all you know, the, the thanks Biden meme is every, everywhere. Uh, the Democrats legislative hopes are all cratering along with their midterm chances. And then he starts signing legislation. We have actually a clip uh, where he uh, at, at one of this signing the bill signings that I discussed in the opening. Uh, let's let's play that clip. For all the division in our country, we're showing ourselves in the world that we can take on the biggest challenges. We can take on the special interest and the democracy can deliver for the people of this country. That's why I'm confident that decades from now. People will look back at this week with all we've passed and all we've moved on, that we met the moment at this inflection point in history. So, Alex, I mean, he could have been talking about just testing uh, negative finally for <laughs> for COVID after a couple of weeks of isolation. But this could have been any number of bills that he signed in the last couple of years, but especially this week where he just seems to have some momentum with the semiconductor stuff and the toxic burn pits. And, you know, eventually later on today, the House is going to approve this this big climate and healthcare package and give him this huge set of wins. This is like this has flipped the script on on Biden, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think all you need to know is that they've gone from, as you mentioned, the thanks Biden memes to ironically repurposing the dark Brendan uh, <laughs> memes, you know, and that's really all you need to know about how his his fortunes have have changed. I mean, look, I think Democrats even um, had almost left his presidency for dead uh, when the summer had started. Uh, whether that's fair or not, it's it's an open question. 
This is someone who last year did manage to pass, you know, nearly $2 trillion bill on the American Rescue Plan, did successfully pass bipartisan uh, a bipartisan infrastructure bill, which people in Washington have been talking about for a decade. But the fact is, by the early summer, it looked like the rest of his um, uh, his legislative agenda was was kaput. You know, the chips bill, I think people thought was going to pass, but it was still languishing. I think, you know, of course, there have been multiple points along the way that we thought his climate, uh, what is ultimately now his climate bill um, and, inf- and quote unquote inflation reduction act um you know, that that was that wasn't going to happen, that wasn't going to be able to pass because Joe Manchin was too worried about inflation. Um, but they've had this this late burst of activity. And I would throw in there, Jason, I mean, don't forget too, um, they signed really the most significant gun legislation at the federal level in almost three decades, you know, and it is um, an unusual late burst of activity uh, for an administration, for usually a party at this time in Washington, People are already switching gears, focusing on the midterm elections, more worried about what's happening on the campaign trail than what's happening on Capitol Hill. But frankly, Democrats and and Joe Biden really needed this. You know, his approval rating had sunk below 40 percent in a lot of polls. And it wasn't just independents and it wasn't just Republicans who were um, upset about what was happening. It was Democrats, too. Um, His approval rating among Democrats relative for a relatively speaking for a democratic president was low and i think there was a lot of frustration even within his own party about the lack of progress and i think that manifested in some ways and still continues to manifest um people talking openly about you know members of his own party talking about whether he's even going to run for president again right you know and and he had said over and over again uh, that he plans to run he's going to run in 2024 well, I think in this case, actions maybe speak louder than words. And he could have said it and talked about it um, a couple of months ago, but that he's had so much success lately, I think really bolsters his case and really just kind of gives you a, a sense of the the big picture here that, again, it feels like for the moment anyway, the, the president has turned around his, his time in office. Amanda, you've uh, spent quite a bit of time on the road reporting for politics and also visiting uh, your your new uh, uh, niece <laughs> in, uh, in in Ohio. Um, is is this is this the kind of stuff that breaks through? I mean, we're paying attention to it. We're paying attention to you know um, his legislative successes. It is a quite a bit of a, a contrast to the way things were going in early in the summer, as Alex said. But is this getting through to say the people that you're interacting with on the road and in you know in Arizona and Ohio and, and places like that? I think it really depends, and I know that's not a great answer. Um, I mean, this bill that just the big climate bill it didn't start out as that. Obviously, this was supposed to be, and they were talking about it overtly for months um, when it was Build Back Better as Biden's plan to help working women, and it had all of these caregiving provisions. It had help with childcare, um, subsidizing childcare for most American families. It had, um, you know, uh, money in there to help um, prop up the childcare industry because it's in in real trouble. Um, so while the people who follow climate news are incredibly excited about this, um, I'm not sure how much impact the average voter is going to see from this between now and the midterms, especially um, and of course, that doesn't matter for Biden in a couple of months, but um, it, it does have trickle down effects for the party. So I, I think it really depends if they start to see 
positive impacts on their lives on the ground. Now, of course, like gas prices are dropping, um, but uh, food prices are are still really high. So I don't really know what impact this might have with voters in, in terms of uh, real world effect on the midterms. And and Sarah, the 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 other part of the opener uh, of the opening statement here was that amid all this, uh, amid you know at least Biden shifting the narrative, regardless of the effect you know that we'll have, and we'll talk about the midterms a little bit later. Um, here here's Trump, you know, taking the fifth in in New York in a uh, civil case, you know, that brought on by the New York Attorney General's office, and then you know this, we started off the week, you know, with with the FBI. Uh, raiding, you know, Mar-a-Lago. We found that out from Trump himself. He sent out uh, a, a release, uh, and and then it just it just mushroomed. Before before we get started, I just want to just a, the 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 effect that it had on Republican politicians was uh, pretty sterling. We're going to play a little clip uh, where we've got Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rand Paul talking about uh, you know some of the uh, some of their uh, considered thoughts about this FBI raid. I think every American should be upset about this. You should never use the Justice Department on a political whim like this. Do I know that the boxes of material they took from Mar-a-Lago, that they won't put things in those boxes to entrap him? We have to defund and make cuts in the Department of Justice. Call up Christopher Wray, call up Mayor Garland, bring him in front of the House Judiciary Committee. It's like what we thought about the Gestapo or people like that. So Sarah, uh, here here we have uh, again for sort of considered reaction <laughs> to to the raid. Um, I mean, just that was you know just a few days ago, and we're still sorting this out. What do we know so far about uh, about what the FBI uh, has has seized and and the sort of standoff between Merrick Garland on one side and and uh, Donald Trump on the other? Well, hopefully we will know more today when uh, the uh, the warrant could be released as soon as today, but the you know, various outlets have reported that the records are, are classified. The records were among some of the highest level security, um, you know, restrictions in the federal government. And they were sitting in a office at, <laughs> you know, the president's winter home, um, where you know, can you imagine being the steward who your job is to change the sheets and make sure Russian spies don't go into the office? Like, it's, uh, but especially the, if they're guests, you know, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we're still learning bits and pieces about what the documents actually were, but I think that's what fueled the the comments at the beginning of the week. You know, this really seemed like a an overreach by the FBI. It was really easy for Republicans to talk about politicization and, you know, point out that, you know, Hillary Clinton's home wasn't raided uh, in 2016. But as more has gotten out, you've kind of notice that people are getting a little quieter and quieter. And yeah, and, and I think that the, you know, one of the one of the things that we're seeing is like the there is there there are so many people who just want to react automatically on that which helps define the narrative. We did have a few people, um Tim Scott among them, a, a Republican senator from South Carolina who said maybe we should just see what what this is all about first before everybody reacts to it. Um, I mean, like, the, the, let's just, you know, everybody cool their jets a little bit. I mean, he was among, you know, a, a few people uh, in in the Republican, you know, sort of orbit who were, were saying this, but the, it, it seems to me that the, it, we're, 
the, the broader thing is that we, the Justice Department is in the situation where they don't, you know, you you cover the Justice Department, Sarah, you know that they don't comment on things par- partly out of fairness uh, to, to the people who they're investigating. Uh, and now Garland is in the situation where he's like, okay, you know, like, let's unseal this. How, how do you think what kind of level of detail might we get from the warrant? Um, so the the motion that the government filed to release the warrant uh, is it pretty much only says that the uh, the names of the agents involved in the search will be redact- uh, will be redacted. So it's they're not calling for major redactions, but that doesn't mean they're not going to appear. Um, but it, it seems like DOJ, you know, they called the bluff here mm-hmm. and that they are intending to release as much as they can. You know, we, we may see the underlying affidavit, the, the probable cause that the FBI put forward in explanation of the judge of why a, a search warrant was necessary. Um, but we have no guarantees that that's actually going to be there. So we're going to get the, the who and the why, some of the what. We might find out exactly what criminal charges they are accusing him of um, or you know, alluding to that he might be guilty of. But uh, I don't know if we're going to get the full scope of the details, not going to get the full backstory here. And, and Alex, it's got to, I mean, sort of drive the White House a little nuts that, I mean, the, the, the idea that Biden signed off on this to attack Trump uh, is is sort of undercut by the fact that Biden probably doesn't want the competition <laughs> for for you know news. I mean, today the House is going to pass this massive you know climate change and healthcare bill, which has taken more than a year and a half of uh, of Joe Manchin's precious time, and. And at the same time, I, I almost guarantee within a, we'll get shortly thereafter or before the details of the warrant. <laughs> so like this is like a, a public relations nightmare from a communications perspective. Yeah. And, and I think it's one that they've been grappling with since he took office. Right. And you alluded to it at the at the top that, you know, it feels like President Trump has been in the background or at times in the foreground uh, the in, during the entirety of the Biden presidency. And the truth is, at this at this moment, he's in the foreground again, right? And as we talked about, he's at the foreground in a moment where they would really like to be able to sit back and tout the success um, that that the president has had, the legislative successes over the last month, but not just the legislative successes, right? They want to talk about July's inflation numbers, you know, which are actually technically below 0%. They want to talk about the jobs report um, that was in uh, over a half million jobs that beat expectations. They want to be able to tie this all into the legislative successes they've had. They want to be able to talk to Democrats about how, you know, look, you were really disaffected by this presidency, but things are back on track, you know, at least to some degree, you know, we've, we've pulled this back together. They want to reach out to independents. They want to do all of this, of course, you know, with roughly 90 days before the election, but look, that's not what people are going to be talking about, you know, and that's been the case all this week, essentially since uh, I think the, the press release came in at 7 PM Eastern standard time, uh, from from Donald Trump, the, his home had been quote raided by the FBI, and that has been the subject of of conversation. Now, I I think you can have like a real debate about how much the the conversation sinks in. You know, is it concentrated um, on podcasts like this and cable news, and how much does it reach people? But you know, the the president and the White House they need every sort of bit of bandwidth available, right, to try to to try to reset the narrative about his presidency. Um, and they're just not going to get it this week. Clearly, they're they're not going to get it. 
And we are going to talk a little bit more about the midterms and how this is sort of trickling down. And and as as you stated, uh, Alex, we've got just a little over, uh, you know, a few months left before the midterms. We've got a lot of primaries to sift through. Um, but uh, we're going to take a short break here on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick sitting in for Bill, along with Amanda Becker, Alex Rorty, and Sarah Wire. And today's podcast is brought to you by the Iron Workers Union of North America. Under the leadership of President Eric Dean, the iron workers say the sky's the limit, and boy, do they mean it. You look at most of America's iconic structures, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the Arch in St. Louis, the New World Trade Center, all built by iron workers. Check out their website, ironworkers.org, to find out more about their great work. We salute the iron workers of America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, setting in for Bill along with Amanda Becker, politics reporter for 19th News, Sarah Wire, Justice Department and National Security reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and Alex Rorty, White House correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. Uh, Amanda, you're again, as, as we stated a little earlier, you have been spending a lot of time on the road reporting uh, on, on races from Arizona to, you know, all, you know, th- throughout the country. And, and but and particularly focused, you know, with the 19th mission is to uh, to to discuss, you know, women in politics and policy and so forth. But what you're seeing, um, you know, like just got a. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's coverage on steroids after the Supreme Court's uh, uh, decision that um, you know struck down Roe versus Wade. I mean that in that put in a level of uncertainty to politics, which is sort of unprecedented. We usually don't take away rights uh, with court decisions. That's that's never that's sort, sort of a new one. <laughs> Modern history. <laughs> that's a, that's a new one, and I, I was struck by the fact that a lot of political handicappers 
you know, we're, we're like, well, you know, I mean, abortion really doesn't motivate people. It doesn't motivate voters. Um, you know, we're, this is going to be a very typical midterm, you know, like the president's party always loses seats, da, 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 da. Uh, and then Kansas happened. <laughs> Let's talk about Kansas a little bit. Uh, and, and what your, you know, what your sort of observations are from the, the election it was just a little, a little over a week and a half ago in Kansas where abortion, uh, there was this crazy situation where in the primary, you can amend the constitution to uh, the, in Kansas. Kansas constitution does not allow um, you to take away abortion rights or, 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 or um, nullify them. But uh, what, what happened there in, in, in uh, shiny blue liberal Kansas? Uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure I agree with that description of Kansas, but um, <laughs> they essentially defeated an effort to change the Constitution to allow you to take away abortion rights. So, and it um, wasn't close either. <laughs> no, it wasn't close at all, and um, it it didn't actually surprise me. Um, despite all of the conventional wisdom we've been hearing from a lot of pollsters and other people that um, people don't vote based on abortion. People might not have voted based on abortion um, in in terms of the abortion rights side for the past 49 years, but that's because they could get abortions and they could access them. Um, Now that that's been taken away and you have all these stories in the news about um, women and children having to go to other states to get abortions, um, I think that we really saw an indicator from Kansas about how this will play out in the midterms. And I think especially in some um, gubernatorial elections, in some Senate elections, uh, we will see an impact from this. And I think it's part of the reason a lot of, um, for example, Senate candidates are polling ahead of Biden. Uh, Biden's approval ratings have not been great. Um, and many members of his party are actually uh, polling more strongly than he is right now. And I think um, people's fears about abortion rights are part of that. And and also, I, I, I feel like the you know, there, there is a dynamic going on that is a little different in politics. I mean, like with 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 the House, you know, we have this very small margin uh, in, in the House. You know, Democrats have a five seat majority, although I mean, there's so many people who have quit or or died, quite frankly, you know, that it, it's it's always a shifting narrative. But, you know, the Republicans only need a handful of seats to take the majority. And it's it's very easy to see them getting that in multiple ways. But as you stated, in gubernatorial races and statewide races like for United for the Senate, um, it, it's it, it's where you have to have independence, at least in some you know cases, uh, in 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 most states, it, it has really shifted the calculus. I've noticed that people like Rick Scott, who's the chairman of the 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 uh, Republican Senate campaign uh, committee, he uh, he's a little less bullish uh, as is Mitch McConnell about retaking the Senate. They've they've sort of to caveat these or or you know like or use some caveats about well if we raise enough money if we do this. Um, and it, it just seems like that calculus is, is just really changed right as we're doing, right as we're in this very busy month. Yeah. And you will, and we also saw the past two cycles that money doesn't necessarily translate into victories. I mean, look at the money that was dumped into Maine, um, a few years ago on behalf of Democrats and that didn't work. So Republicans can raise all the money they want, but if they're not selling something that voters want, I don't, I think there's, you know, a ceiling to the impact that money can have. Um, you know, like you said, I actually think at this point, if I were to predict, um, I think Democrats will do better, um, 
have a better chance of keeping the Senate and picking up seats in the Senate and could potentially lose seats or lose the House. Um, a lot of that is because of gerrymandering and because our you know, elections on a local level and on a district level don't actually reflect our, our politics anymore in this country. Um, but as you said, with these statewide races, you know, I, I even have been out to a place like Washington State to find out, you know, do voters in a, in a solidly blue state on a statewide basis that, you know, Washington is a state that really protects abortion rights. Are they voting on this issue or do they think, mm, I don't need to, I can worry about the economy because, you know, my chances of getting an abortion are not in danger. And, you know, it, people were very energized by this when I was out there a few weeks ago. I was following Patty Murray around. And uh, I do think that this is something that has, you know, changed the calculus for the the elections in a couple months. Sarah, there's another pretty big issue out there that has, seems to have shifted. Um, as as uh, you know, as Alex mentioned, one of the big, um, you know, sort of legislative accomplishments for the administration and for the, the Congress was passing a, a bipartisan bill that, um, you know, on on gun safety. But we still have sort of an alarming number of you know threats of political violence of people. You know of of you know, guns as an issue hasn't really gone away. I mean, the FBI just had to deal with uh, somebody who, you know, tried to go into their field office in, in Cincinnati. Uh, and, you know, because of this, you know, because of the saying that he was aggrieved because of the raid, uh, apparently. I mean, is is this an issue you think that is also impacting, you know, people uh, as, as they think about who they're going to vote for? I mean, the, the number of threats against elected officials has skyrocketed in recent years. And um, we saw that even before January 6th, that the number was just going up exponentially. Um, and it's it's going down even to the local levels. You've got, you know, county workers, poll workers being threatened for doing their jobs. Um, you know, people who the average person has probably never even heard of is suddenly being threatened for doing the routine job. Um yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's a factor. You know, some of these groups have always existed and have always made threats, but they're a lot more vocal. And I think the average person's much more aware that they're, they exist. Um, you know, you get a sense that people are more worried about the state of democracy in this election. You know, normally elections are about the economy or maybe politics. Um, but there's kind of that root civics at the back of it right now that I, I haven't seen in, you know, 20 years of covering politics. Alex, I, I mean, you know, the president is, seems to be somebody who, who is trying to keep in mind, you know, the historic nature of, of this moment. Um, you know, as, as Sarah said, a lot of, a lot of people are worried about the state of democracy, there was a story out of the Washington Post this week, you know, a, 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 about Biden's frequent meetings with historians like, you know, John Meacham and so forth, where they're they're warning him like we're at a perilous state. I mean, but we're we're really not going to see probably any kind of movement on that. I mean, they, they tried to, um, you know, they've, they've tried to, to uh, do voting rights, you know, legislation throughout this Congress, and it's gotten kind of nowhere because it always stalls in the Senate. Um, is, is that something that, you know, the 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 White House is, is going to try to push or are they just, do they hope that the, the accomplishments that they have and, and issues like abortion and gun control might help, you know, sort of the save their bacon or save the Democrats bacon. I mean, or is this something that they feel like they have to also address? 
You know, Jason, that's a good question. You know, I think you you saw the president, you know, at the very beginning of this year, really try to refocus on voting rights uh, amid, you know, sort of his legislative agenda more broadly being stalled. And they said, OK, let's really let's go to the mat for for voting rights. Um, and of course, failed in, in Congress. Um, and I feel like you have seen the president and the White House talk very, very, very little about that ever since. Um, you know, I think, you know, we can infer maybe some of the reasoning is, is, is obvious in that they don't want to talk about something that they weren't um, able to get across the finish line. Um, something that really, I think when we talk about why Democrats were disappointed in the Biden administration, I think for a chunk of the party, a big part of that conversation was about voting rights and, and the perception early in his administration that he wasn't focusing enough on it and then the failure to, to ultimately pass it. Um, although I think he did win some some credit for at least going to the map for it in Congress, even if it if it didn't pass. You know, do they rework that talking point in here over the next 90 or so days ahead of the midterm election? I, I don't know. You know, they seem pretty content to talk a lot about the Dobbs decision and abortion rights. Um, I think they're going to try to tout whatever economic progress uh, they can find, particularly when it comes to jobs. Um, you know, could they, could you see a message? Could you see Joe Biden, you know, in October going around saying, I need so-and-so in the house, or I need so-and-so in the Senate because we need to finally protect voting rights in this country. Sure. But do I think it's going to be a main pillar of their argument? I don't think we see a lot of evidence for that uh, just yet. Well, I feel like, uh, you know, the, (laughs) I didn't want to end so much on doom and gloom, um, on on it, but I, I do feel like we are, we're still in sort of a holding pattern because we just don't know, uh, Amanda, that like the, you know, on, on one hand you see, you know, things are, there is, there is some, you know, kind of the, some progress and people are actually working together. I mean, I, I was struck by the fact that at the White House signing ceremony, like the person directly behind Joe Biden was Todd Young, a Republican from from Indiana. Um, and so, it, it, I mean, and again, I know that they stage these things to for maximum effect uh, sometime, uh, but Young didn't resist, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, but it you is, but, it, but again, is this, is this, you know, what are you looking at, you know, as, as you, as, as sort of, we, we start to go into the home stretch of like the, the midterms, you know, like, I, you know, you're you're about to start a fellowship, but I know you. You're not going to be able to resist uh, tuning into the news. What are you looking at as you uh, go into the midterms? Oh well, you know, I do plan on taking a short a short <laughs> news break just to see like what it does to my brain because I've never been able to do that. Um, I I mean, I really am focused on the abortion rights issue right now in terms of the midterms, both personally and professionally, and seeing how that plays out and how it plays out in various states and at various um, levels on the ballot. Um, I know that's probably not everyone's focus. Um, I do think the economy and inflation are still something to watch. I mean, I noticed the other day Chipotle has raised their prices. So, you know, if it you know, Democrats can talk all they want about how how they're doing things to combat inflation with this bill that they're about to sign and pass. But until people start to see it and feel it, that feels really empty. And I think there's been a disconnect between this administration on the economy and voters because the administration has been talking about how great it is and the jobs numbers are great, but people aren't necessarily feeling like that. And at the end of the day, it's how people feel. Um, 
about their own life, about their family, about how where things are headed that really matters to them. And that's what they're going to be voting on when they show up. So the two things I would be looking at are um, abortion rights and economy slash inflation. This has been a really good conversation. Uh, I feel like we could go on a bit, but um, I, I do want to get to um, the fav- our favorite stories of the week. Um I am uh, Jason Dick. I've been setting in for Bill here uh, as, he, as he has taken some uh, much-deserved time off, uh, along with Amanda Becker, Alex Rorty, and Sarah Wire. Uh, but let's get to those favorite stories of the week. We like to end on this uh, every Friday at the roundtable. Uh, these are, can be funny, sad, important, just something that left you scratching your head. Um, hopefully, hopefully not overtly political. We've done the political part of this. Uh, Sarah, let's start with you. Um, my favorite piece of this week is actually in the Washington City paper, and it is about a trove of amateur photographs that were uh, found in a dumpster uh, that show life in D.C. in the middle of the 20th century. And it was a, a Japanese photographer who just kind of that guy who always had a camera around his neck. He worked for the government. So some of the photos are, you know, uh, you know uh, Nixon joking around with teenage girls playing lacrosse and, uh, you know, jazz musicians, famous jazz musicians uh, laughing together behind the scenes at shows. Um, but it really made me think about what happens to all these things we create as artists when we die. I, I I gotta say that it, that was a great story, and that did not help my hoarding habit uh, on artifacts and photographs and things like that. <laughs> uh, Alex, what about you? Your favorite story of the week? Well, I I don't know if it's my favorite story of the week, Jason, but it did hit close close to home, uh, and I know unfortunately it'll hit close to home for you as well. But it's a story in the Washington Post, and I'll just read the headline. At least it wasn't the Yankees for young baseball fans. An early lesson in a cruel business. <laughs> it was basically a story interviewing young fans of the Nationals oh. as they watch their beloved baseball team unravel, which I got to say, even for us adult fans of the, the team, has been difficult to watch. Of course, the, the final, the nail in the coffin, if you will, was trading Juan Soto, a guy I think we all thought we would be watching uh, for the next 15 to, to 20 years. Instead, goes off to San Diego. The story, as I said, just talks to a lot of young fans and talks to their parents. One particularly heartbreaking anecdote, uh, a dad saying that um, his son, you know, just seems less interested in baseball than he was a couple of years ago um, when the Nats were really at the height of their popularity. And he wanted to go to summer camps and play baseball year round. And unfortunately, that enthusiasm has waned for his son. So, I, Jason, I apologize for being a real bummer. Um, <laughs> that's but, okay. but that's that's the story that really – I just have to speak my truth, and that, that's the, the story that really stuck out to me. No, it, it is a good story. It's, it's, it is sort of heartbreaking, and, and as if to put a, a punctuation marker, an exclamation point on it, of course – who, what game am I going to tonight? Uh, the San Diego Padres come to town <laughs> for the first time since they tr- uh, since they acquired Juan Soto, and I just feel like I have to be there. Uh, it's it's kind of like you know you 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 never miss a wedding or a funeral you're invited to. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you're in your Juan Soto jersey at least. <laughs> Uh, Amanda Becker, uh, again, the uh, um, you, we want to wish you well uh, as you head to your your Neiman Fellowship uh, in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We 
will miss you uh, for the time that you're up there, but we know you will be back on this podcast and others. Uh, what's your favorite story as you as you head off into your news fast and fellowship? Well, thank you, Jason. Um, you know, I, I if if Alex thought he had something depressing, I'm going to I'm going to win here. Um, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to me. You know, one time on this podcast, I, I I used a Real Housewives story, but every other time, I'm unfortunately a huge downer. Um, it was a story in the Atlantic four or five days ago. Um, the title is "The Secret History of the U.S. Government's Family Separation Policy: An Investigation by Caitlin Dickerson." Um, I would. This is uh, really just an excellent look back. Um, has a lot of new details in it that I hadn't known, that I hadn't seen reported before. Um, I would recommend um, reading it in chunks. It's hard to do all at once because it's so upsetting. Um, and maybe with maybe with some Kleenex. Um, but it's a story that I think uh, needed to be told. And it's important to know kind of the backstory of that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty devastating. Um, I mean, that's that's not much of a plug for it, but it is. You're right. It is important. And this is something that we do need to bear sort of witness to, if, if nothing else. Um, my uh, the, the, the story that I cannot get out of my uh, mind uh, is from The Washington Post. And it concerns um, it, it, there is a personal angle. Uh, it's not as personal as the Juan Soto <laughs> Washington National story, maybe. Um, but it concerns a, a record store in Phoenix, my hometown. Um, it's a place called in groove. Uh, I, I first went there a few years ago with my friend, uh, Jonathan Hurwitz, uh, who's a long, long time friend and long time also music, uh, person that I've listened to a lot of, <laughs> a lot of music with, um, and bonded with. And we, we, we just went to this quirky little store called in groove. And this guy was like really into his records and really into sound quality and really into making sure that everything was clean and well-priced. And I thought, Oh, this is great. It's kind of Mike Esposito. He's got a cool personal story. Anyway, the post story is about how he started wondering like how how this one label uh, in, in California called MoFi, which had been reissuing uh, classic albums from what they said were analog master tapes, how they were able to do so much of this without wearing the tapes out and so forth. And so he started like, you know, basically asking questions about it and came to the conclusion um, that that MoFi had been misrepresenting uh, itself, that they had been using digital tapes uh, for not the analog masters for a lot of these very expensive reissues. Uh, He was attacked viciously by some of the people in the, uh, you know, kind of this audio file world, you know, people who, whose, whose stereos uh, are, you know, more expensive than some cars. uh, And, and, but it turns out he was right. And, and MoFi, and he went and sort of investigated, this guy's not a journalist, he's a record store owner. Uh, And he he went to the factory and had a conversations with them. And it's just like, it unfurls like a mystery and it's a really good story and it's kind of heartbreaking and it, it will make if you have bought expensive reissues you're probably not going to be very happy uh from with this label but it's a really it's a really good story and i highly recommend it um all right that's a wrap for this edition of the bill press pod reporters roundtable our thanks to you for listening and to amanda becker politics reporter for 19 news sarah wire justice department and national security reporter for the los angeles times and alex rorty white house correspondent for mcclatchy newspapers i'm jason dick editor-in-chief at cq roll call sitting in for bill who is back next week and he'll have a great interview with washington post opinion writer and all-around great guy dana milbank about his new book 
The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Have a great weekend. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.